0: Yeah. <music>
1: June 16th, 2017, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and German Communist Wedding Survivor. With me today is my colleague at Dutch News, fellow Contributing Editor and Brexit Disaster Tourist, Gordon Derrick, and Paul Peters, Civil Engineering Master's Student and Serial Duck Feeder. This week we will update you on the latest coalition talks, discuss why on earth anyone would pay 65,000 euros for fish, and talk about a new deadly trend among teenagers. In our discussion, we ask, have we reached peak beer? Our
0: top story is that it's back to square one in the Dutch coalition talks saga after the latest attempt to form a government broke down three months after the election. The four parties involved, the Feifei Christian Democrats, D66 and Hoon Links, were unable to agree on the issue of refugees for the second time. Former Labour Party senator Herman Tink Villink, who is chairing the talks, said he remained committed to forming a majority government even though all the fourth party options are problematic. So
1: I saw um, that, yes, Claver did a, an interview, that he was in, in sort of a, trying to take the blame away from himself. So why is he getting the blame this time around? Yeah, it's all a
0: big game of uh, blame shifting, but essentially Claver has taken the flat this time because uh, he, he was offered uh, a kind of deal for accommodating refugees in North Africa, and he said no, um, and, and uh, the, the other three parties said uh, kind of agreed to. It. it was based on the deal that Rutter has struck uh, for Syrian refugees in Turkey, which if uh, you speak Amnesty international isn't a terribly good solution, but it's um, it's worked for Rutte. But uh, Klaver said uh, he wasn't uh, in favour of it and he didn't want to send political refugees home, so the talks broke down. it been a very different um, breakup uh, from the previous one where everyone was quite friendly towards each other and stressed it wasn't the end. This really does feel like it is the end and the other parties uh, you know, don't see any way back into the talks for Links now. Yeah, he
1: said that in this interview that it wasn't just the refugee issues, but there were a number of other issues that they sort of just, he could not see where they were going to be able to converge on any sort of agreement.
0: Yeah, I think it was always going to be difficult, but I mean, they didn't actually get onto those issues because, uh, you know, Tink willing tried to fix the migration issue first and uh, it just uh, it ran aground at that point straight away. So we'll never know really whether they could have found some kind of agreement on climate change, where the Sadia had a very different view, or on things like income inequality.
2: And uh, the uh, the average time it takes for a coalition to form is 19-2 days, and we are now at 19 Day ninety four, so we uh, are over average now. True, but Officially. there have been yeah, but
0: there have been a lot of holidays, and Jessica Klauber's mum died, so yeah, they haven't actually been talking. They haven't actually had that many working days. Yeah, but, papadag, uh, it's there's been a lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed.
1: So what's what's next? What's what are the options now?
0: Yeah, so now the options are they're now looking at uh, whether they can get things started again with the Christian Union that fell apart previously because D sixty six disagreed with them strongly on the moral and ethical issues. That's going to be difficult. Or everyone's starting to now talk about whether the Labour Party can be kind of enticed back in. At the moment, of Hasso said very firmly, "No, he doesn't want to go back into government after his party got badly burnt in the elections." But uh, yeah, increasingly that's becoming a more kind of attractive option. I don't know, Paul. Do you think uh, the PVV might come in at this point?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I don't think they they are very willing to join the coalition, but they might form a gedoog coalition so that they support the coalition of three parties in general terms and at some points that they, that the PvDR thinks they they can support it then you know the coalition needs to find a different uh, majority. That might be the case. But I don't see them actually stepping into the government.
1: For what it's worth, my 70-year-old Belgian-Dutch instructor uh, is insisting that the PVDA <laughs> is going to join the coalition. So a little political insight from yeah. that, uh, that, that corner of the world.
2: And a fun anecdote. Herman Cenk Willink is very old-fashioned and he uh, he asked everyone to write a letter to him writing down, black and white, whether or not they want to talk with other parties. So Mark Rutte wrote a letter. He said, I I don't want to talk with the PVV. Uh, Emil Roemer of the Socialist Party, he wrote a letter. I don't want to talk with the VVD. And uh, Alexander Pechtold didn't write a letter. And he, so he didn't rule out the Christian Union. And that's why they are going to talk now oh. with the Christian Union. So there's a whole kind of Willem des situation. And what you don't <laughs> say is more significant than what you do say. Indeed, <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah.
1: Or maybe Alexander Pechtold is just ashamed of his handwriting. So he didn't want to write a <laughs> that letter. It
2: could, um, could be, yeah. Yeah, does he have worse yeah. handwriting than Donald Trump?
1: I don't think that's <laughs> possible.
2: I think we need to get Willing to install WhatsApp. Yeah, a <laughs> WhatsApp group. Yeah.
1: is the one guy in your family who refuses to join the WhatsApp group and oh, is then yeah. mad that he's like not kept up <laughs> to date with idea, like the yeah the, yeah, the babies and stuff. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, uh, let's uh, suppose that you're Hem Tink Willing for a day. Uh, what what do you do next?
2: Um, well, I saw a video of him trying to uh, park his bike inside the building, so I think I would uh, try to park my bike oh. at every room in the. Binnenhof complex that would be my number one goal and after that, focus on forming a government.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that their approach of sort of starting with these obstacles that they don't seem to be able to agree on and then later trying to work out the stuff where they seem to have more agreement is a good tactic? Or maybe so, they would be better off uh, of doing it the other way around.
0: Well, it hasn't worked. That's sort of evidence uh, that we have. You know, I, I wonder if um, maybe rather than just focusing on this one issue, I think Ching Vilink thought he could get migration out of the way and then get on to the main issues. And what he missed was migration is one of the main issues. It was one of the big you know, dividing points during the election among the among the voters. And uh, it was quite clear when the talk started uh, that Clava said that was one of the three things he really wanted to um, uh, get some concessions on from the others. So maybe they should have taken a few issues at once. And really, at that point, then, rather than just Clava being offered this deal and said, take it or leave it, he doesn't know what I'm going to get back for it further down the line, actually try and take two or three issues at once so he can then say, okay, I'll give ground here on migration but i want something in return on climate change <laughs> but on the other hand if you get a certain way down the road on other issues where you have got common ground and then they put the migration in front of you then you've got more to lose and can say okay if i refuse a deal at this point i'm also losing all the things yeah. i've you know all, 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 the, all the good things i've built up earlier in the in the talks yeah, maybe i guess we don't that makes know sense. yeah we'll never know now
1: i've never formed a coalition government have formed this group of people. I did, I formed this group of people, but I have been in a relationship, and I feel like <laughs> if you're going to complain about how your partner loads the dishwasher, the way you start out is not with that, like, they can't stack classes properly, you start out with like, honey, you know I love you, so maybe that's what Cenk Willing Whoa. needs to start
2: with. Maybe Cenk Willing should start a dating app called Chinker. <laughs> god, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's just totally off <laughs> In a story that made international headlines this week, a man who drove uh, his car into pedestrians at Amsterdam Central Station has been released on Wednesday, but the public prosecutor will decide later on whether he will be charged with violating road safety laws. On Saturday, the uh, 45-year-old man injured 8 people when he drove across the pedestrian area in front of the station before crashing into a metro entrance. Police said the man, who claims to remember nothing, suffered a quote blackout, and there was no suggestion of terrorism or deliberate intent.
1: So this sort of hit the headlines in the international press as kind of a potential terrorist act at at Amsterdam Central Station last weekend. So, Paul, what exactly happened on Saturday? Uh,
2: Well, the police investigated the incident, and they said that the man's actions were not deliberate. He wasn't under the influence of any substance, uh, but rather he had diabetes, so he had very low uh, blood sugar levels, and that's why he wasn't able to to control his uh, car properly. Uh, It was noticed he was acting strange near Rembrandtplein in Amsterdam, driving on a dedicated tram lane. Uh, And later on, he did the same near Amsterdam Central Station, and um, after which he plowed into a group of pedestrians.
0: And uh, how are the eight victims doing now?
2: Two people were brought uh, to the hospital, heavily injured, but uh, the rest could be treated on site. And understandably, the crash caused some panic among Amsterdammers, especially considering uh, the recent attacks with cars and trucks in London and in uh, Nice and in Berlin. Uh, And that's also why the police detained the man for several days uh, for so long uh, because they wanted to make absolutely sure he wasn't a terrorist interestingly enough the incident wasn't recorded by security cameras or cctv uh, so the police had some difficulties uh, determining what exactly happened
0: i suppose it shows how much on edge people are as well that immediately as soon as this happened the first everyone's first thought was oh god is this some kind of attack
2: rather than just an accident yeah
1: yeah, and it certainly didn't help that uh, Amsterdam police and stuff were, of course, tweeting out and, and putting out lots of information. But all this information was going out in Dutch, and so I think a lot of the international press kind of picked it up without uh, being able to sort of account for a lot of like clarifying issues that they sort of knew right away that this wasn't a, wasn't a terrorist attack. Mm. Yeah. Well, best of luck to the uh, to the victims, and I hope that uh, the guy is yeah, feeling we'll better it, so. now that he's been been released. <laughs> yeah. In an update to the biggest scandal in recent Dutch history, it emerged this week that the missing millions from the 1983 Heineken kidnapping were invested in properties in Alkmaar and Amsterdam. Freddy Heineken, heir to the Heineken fortune, and his driver were kidnapped by Willem Hollander and others. The family paid 35 million guilders, the equivalent of 65 million euros today, to the kidnappers for the return of Heineken. Though the kidnappers were ultimately caught, 8 million guilders, or about 15 million euros, was never accounted for. This week, however, on the news program Ein van Dach, Hollander's sisters Sonia and Astrid revealed that the money was initially hidden in Paris before being brought back to the Netherlands. So why has this only come to light now? The statements were revealed as part of an ongoing set of hearings for another trial for Hollander's involvement in other criminal activities. He's sort of a known kind yeah, of right, crime lord.
0: There's a whole kind of almost um, mini-industry of a villain Hollander court cases, right? There always seems to be one going on at any one time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I
1: think that a number of the public prosecution service are just employed on the basis of yeah. investigating Phil
0: Hollander. And his sister wrote a book as well.
1: Yeah, called, uh, named Judas, right, yeah. I believe. And she sort of wrote about her experiences of, uh, of being the sister of, yeah. of the famous uh, criminal.
2: Was she the one married to the... Uh... Uh, to the other no kidnappers?
1: that was Sonia so the, this one of these two sisters Sonia was married to the Hollanders co-conspirator in the kidnapping um, who was killed in an, another criminal related activity uh, uh, 10 or 12 years ago no of, which yeah, so no. of
2: which William Hollander was charged yes of which Willem Hollander was charged so it hasn't come
0: to light because they suddenly found the bonnages, yeah. what happens. <laughs> everything in this country comes back to the Bonnages so, so did you have to did you have to learn all this for your integration course no there
1: was did? nothing about the Heineken kidnapping in the integration That's course really strange, I know yeah. lots of what? parts about the main Cast and nothing about the <laughs> kidnapping. It's, quite a, it's not very useful information on that.
2: Uh-huh. The new herring season has kicked off on Tuesday with the traditional auction of the first barrel. A group of young entrepreneurs from Veinendaal who calls themselves lovers of the fish and don't want to know what that means. <laughs> um, they were willing to pay 60,000 euros for the barrel. So I guess we now really know what happened to the Heineken money. <laughs> um, the money goes to charity. And this year that uh, charity was Make-A-Wish. Uh, Hollandse Nieuwe, as it's called in Dutch, is raw herring, usually served with onions and a pickle. And uh, it is only available a few weeks a year. The technique of cleaning the fish was developed by Willem Beukelszoon in 1380. Uh, The official festivities will take place on Saturday in Scheveningen on Vlaggetjesdag. So, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Hollandse Nieuwe Molly?
1: I can't answer that question because this is a family-friendly podcast.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: And you're going. I'm and kind of quite partial to the, old pickle, uh, the old raw herring uh, with pickled onions on a white roll. It has to be a white roll. So really oh,
2: you funny. want you eat it on a sandwich? On the, oh yeah, yeah. You don't eat it on a tail and just. Uh, no, that, it that, that,
0: that, 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 I think that would. Uh, that's, that's uncivilized. That, would,
2: that should be banned on health and safety grounds, I think. <laughs> yeah. So you like it with? Uh, I don't like the pickles, though. no,
0: no, no. I've got, no, I've got to, no, everything raw. You know, raw onions, raw fish.
2: Raw pickles, no, because, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I never really liked it. And uh, last year, uh, the A Day they always publish a a herring uh, test in which they rank the best herring places in the Netherlands. And uh, the number two or number three was uh, nearby here in Delft, so I decided to just uh, try it out there. Mm-hmm. And if I don't like it at the number three of the you know, the number three best herring place, then I'm not going to like it anywhere. And yeah. I thought it was pretty good, so yeah. But
0: I, I thought you should take Molly up to
2: Flockersdog
1: uh, next year, whatever day this is. i Definitely very busy on (laughs) that next year. So, 65,000 euros, is that a record?
2: Uh, Not at all, actually. This year was a low year. The record is 95,000 euros for the first barrel, and that was in 2012 when a staffing agency bought the first barrel. Uh, And even last year, it was sold for 90,000 euros by uh, the Jumbo Supermarkets.
0: Parents have been mourned about the dangers of social media dares after a 16 year old boy died during an online choke challenge. Tim Reinder's family came home from a night out last month to find him hanging from the stairs, but when police investigated, they found it wasn't suicide, but an online game that had gone terribly wrong. Tim's phone camera was switched on and had recorded the whole incident. In choke challenges, teenagers film themselves cutting off their airways until they pass out, to give themselves a brief high, and then share the footage on the internet.
1: This is such a terrible story. Um, Have there been other, like, sort of associated incidents here in the Netherlands or Uh, elsewhere? This is the
0: first time I think someone's actually died in this situation, but uh, a couple of years ago, a 13-year-old boy from Hilversum uh, was in a coma for five days. Um, after a similar kind of challenge where you, you swallow a whole spoonful of cinnamon and well, apparently that stops you breathing temporarily and there were two children in Belgium two boys aged 10 and 15 who died in 2012 uh, while playing a similar game yeah it's really awful it's really awful
2: yeah yeah, yeah at, at my high school I had a similar thing that uh, someone would stand uh, against the wall and uh, someone else would press against his chest until uh, uh, that person fainted for a few minutes but I guess then you had some some someone around that could warn the police or an ambulance or some teachers so uh, when things went wrong and if you're doing this alone then obviously you don't have that kind of security or safety
0: yeah we had a similar thing at school where you just of hyperventilate and then make yourself pass out and you'd fall back onto a bed but again those you did it in a group and there's some people oh. around you so they could raise the alarm if it went wrong i think that's what's different here that because you do it you know you, you do it online um so you're both basically in isolation and uh, you know this boy, he was he was recording it to put to, to put footage up later. So when it went wrong, there was no one, no one knew about it until sadly his family came back a few hours later, and it was
2: far too late. That's really sad. And 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 what can parents do about this? Yeah, it's difficult,
0: isn't it? Because you know we've all been teenagers, and we know that your know, your parents telling you that that something's uh, dangerous and you shouldn't do it doesn't always. Work you're more interested in you know how what your peer group say and uh, how uh, how they behave. Uh, The family of um, uh, this boy Tim said was actually he was a very usually almost over cautious uh, kind of person. You know he was he was actually very kind of safety conscious and safety aware. So he must have been convinced that uh, this wasn't um, a harmful or dangerous thing to do. And sadly. Um, and presumably there are plenty of other situations where people do it and you know don't come to any harm at all but sadly in this case it did but I suppose the advice used to be um, sort of not to talk about these kind of uh, uh, things because uh, people were worried about copycat incidents and now it's switching more Changing more towards uh, that, you should talk about it, not just tell teenagers it's dangerous, but have a discussion about about it. You know, where everyone sits around and, you know, ask them, about, um, you know, actually, actually ask them questions about, you know, um, uh, you know, ha- have you heard of this and, uh, you know, are, are you aware that it can potentially be a very dangerous thing? And the family said uh, this happened a month ago and uh, they went to the media this week and that's uh, how it came out. And they said that they'd gone public about it to kind of raise awareness uh, of it. So hopefully, you know, although it's very sad for them that they that their son is no longer alive some good will come out of it and that uh, you know, it will be less likely to happen to others in the future
1: yeah our uh, condolences to the family and we hope that their sort of pain going forward can maybe prevent the the pain from another
0: uh, family having to experience it indeed
2: In animal news now, um, on Saturday night a man in the uh, Gelderland town of Heteren got robbed from dozens of his exotic snakes. He kept them in a shed behind his home and when he went to feed them in the afternoon, he discovered they were all gone. The police assumes that they were stolen to sell them to other snake enthusiasts, so if someone on the streets in the middle of the night offers you a boa constrictor, a corn snake, an aurora or a python, please notify the police immediately. The snakes aren't poisonous. So is this like
1: when uh, uh, drug addicts walk up to you on the streets and try to off sell you a bicycle for the, fifteen? Yeah, Euros? they opened
2: their, their jacket and, and they, there's uh, just like, the like collection of snakes.
1: <laughs> ah, yeah. uh, some weird, uh, weird animal news this week. Yeah, we'll be discussing beer, but sadly not drinking any after this word from our sponsors. The Dutch statistics office, CBS, released a report this week showing that the number of breweries in the Netherlands has quadrupled over the last 10 years. The country had 90 breweries in 2007 and now boasts 370.
2: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good beer going yeah, on here indeed. in the Netherlands.
0: But are these breweries actually making any money?
1: Well, it's interesting. Nearly uh, 270 of these 370 breweries only employ one person. It's unclear how profitable they are. It's possible that the number of breweries are operating as a hobby rather than as a for-profit company, but strict brewing licenses require that brewers properly register their brewery if they intend to sell any of their beer. But breweries with five or more employees have also seen a considerable amount of growth over the previous decade, so some of them uh, are quite profitable.
2: I actually know someone who has a brewery now I come to think of it uh, it's in Steenbergen and his beer is called uh, Goeie Genade, which means something like good gracious beer or something. It's a pretty good beer, actually. Yeah, there's, there's quite
1: a lot of this that, uh, where these sort of small breweries have kind mm-hmm. of popped up.
2: Uh, how do they stack up against uh, larger breweries such as Heineken and Amstel and stuff like that?
1: Well, craft beer only accounts for 1.1% of beer sales in the country, which to a beer small like me seems impossibly small. But the reality <laughs> is, despite what seems like an overwhelming amount of craft beer, most people still pick up a standard dutch pilsner when they venture out to a bar so heineken is what's considered in the industry to be a macro brewery by definition this means it produces more than 16,000 barrels or about 1.8 million liters of beer per year micro breweries are ones that produce less than that and then there's even so-called nano breweries which are breweries that operate as like a sole proprietorship meaning they only have one employee the owner so quite a few of these breweries are so-called nano breweries yeah
0: so sometimes you might in some cases someone might start off just brewing in their spare room as a hobby and then it start it's successful and they take on more stuff and it kind of grows right
1: yeah that's, that's very often sort of typically how this kind of this thing has evolved you know you sort of have home brewers they do it in their kitchen their friends quite like their beer they make it you know for some barbecues and that kind of stuff and then they sort of evolve into uh, into selling it very often brewers will do what's called contract brewing so they develop the recipes themselves and then take it to a brewing facility where they, they can be brewed um, there's lots of uh, brewers Demola for example has a lot of extra capacity that they rent out to other brewers so that you can sort of make lots of beer but not have to kind of invest in all of the equipment yeah so it's been a big thing and now uh, the industry is sort of getting a lot of investment from kind of venture capital money and other business people. And there's like sort of a lot of, you know, discussion about whether or not that's good beer and really craft beer and that kind of stuff, because, you know, beer snobby people can be snobby about everything, it turns
2: out. Yeah, yeah, because craft beer is becoming more and more popular and more and more fashionable. That That's why larger breweries are interested in uh, investing in that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, But if you
0: look at the statistics, you see that the amount that we're drinking is got, is gradually going down over decades and yet more breweries are opening up. So how does that work?
1: Well they're slowly biting into the to the proportion of the industry that at Heineken and, and those other people are sort of holding on to basically and there's probably been a bit of a switch from drinking maybe other beverages into this so instead of a, a fancy cocktail or like a really nice bottle of wine right that like people have sort of become more cultural elitist about beer instead of about wine so i think there's mm-hmm. been a bit of a switch I know, I know quite a few brewers who maybe started out as as whiskey snobs right and that now they've sort of moved into the to the craft beer scene instead
0: in the uk you get the kind of the uh, what's known as the real ale bores right so people can't look at a drink without sort of starting to analyze is yeast content and what temperature it's served, and what kind of thing. Is, is, that, is there any sign of that in the scene? I did know that
1: there was a special title for people like me.
2: Um, yeah, certainly. Like, if you go to beer
1: festivals and stuff, you will hear lots of people sort of discussing how a beer has, you know, tangerine notes and, like, all of this kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I do think that, like, there is certainly a, a group of people, of which I am definitely one, who kind of are, are super, super beer snobby. But I also think more generally that, like, people who maybe weren't as aware of different kinds of beer before have sort of you know, found a few things that they like that are maybe from smaller breweries and, and are enjoying those instead of a regular sort of
2: pills. And, and is this a new revolution?
1: Not really. Um, not even both in the U S where the sort of craft industry, craft beer industry kind of, started but even in the netherlands the country's oldest sort of quote-unquote craft brewery had i was opened in 1985 uh demola and De Praal, which are both very big names in the kind of craft beer seen here opened in 2004 and 2002 respectively there has been a lot of growth in the last 10 years but beer drinkers here have been looking for something else than a typical dutch pilsner for
2: for quite a while what about the quality of these uh, hundreds of uh, breweries
1: I, so i think it depends a bit on how you're defining quality the the upside to macro breweries is is that beer is consistent right that they have people who are are sort of there ensuring that every batch that they brew is exactly the same as the other batch that they brew. Smaller breweries often don't have this. Um, I know from from having done lots of interviews with brewers and and some work in smaller breweries that you know they have a recipe but maybe they run out of enough sugar and so they don't put it in and so everything is is can be quite a bit different. But I do think that like if your definition of quality is sort of like really well crafted beers that yeah there's a lot more of that now and even if you go to um, you know sort of non-beer bar places that instead, it, you know, sort of was traditionally in the Netherlands that you had a sort of a single kind of shingle hanging out front like Juppeler or Holpener or something like that and now most of the regular places have five or ten other uh, decent, what I would consider kind of decent beers you know, in stock. As a matter of fact, I'm going this evening to a boral in a Scheveringen <laughs> and uh, this sort of little restaurant on the beach that, that we've kind of picked or the, that the organization's kind of picked for this boral. I was sort of expecting well, I guess I'll drink wine because I don't really have much of a palate for wine so I prefer to drink crappy wine over crappy beer. But I kind of looked up at the menu and even at this sort of, you know, beach cafe where there's not really much it's not, you know, not a not a beer cafe by any sort of stretch of the imagination. They have actually a pretty decent beer list. So well, I they think be it's become very, a um, herring? Uh, yeah. dear god, I hope not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what would you recommend as a good beer to drink with pickled herring?
1: So, a good beer to drink with pickled herring. You know, one of the things that pickled herring is also associated with is summer and kind of like warm weather and sort of like being outside, so maybe like a nice white beer I think would probably be a, a good thing. And if you're if you're a a non non herring consumer like i am then maybe something really uh really really strong to kind of wash the taste out of your mouth like a super super hoppy like sort of west coast style ipa or just mouthwash or just mouthwash or just you know don't eat it at all that would
0: be my yeah, suggestion true.
1: drink a good beer don't eat herring that's molly's life advice <laughs> and in general have you got a tip for people heading out this weekend i tend to prefer my beers to have very very strong flavors so i've been quite into drinking a lot of sours lately um there's a brewery in amsterdam called odipus which is kind of famous for its sort of insane labels that it has on its bottles such as it just, it calls their beer sort of weird things. They have a beer called Swingers. They have a beer called Polyamory. They have a beer called Manalifte, which is Dutch for man love. Mm. And they have these sort of very bright kind of, yeah, sort of 80s inspired sort of visual labels. They, like I said, the, the Swingers and the Polyamory, these sort of like sour Goza style beers, I've, I've been enjoying. I think they're really nice on like a hot day. And the upside is this, it's often like low alcohol. So you can have a- Multiple
2: of them. A multiple
1: yeah. of them. Oh. Yeah, while you're sitting out with your barbecue. Paul,
0: have you got the, a particularly favorite uh, craft
2: beer so. uh, not really well every time I'm uh, going to uh, have a drink with Molly she picks my beer because I don't have any I, I don't know anything about beer or craft beer so I always ask Molly pick my beer and uh, everything will be fine and uh, she never picked a beer for me that I didn't like so mm. uh, she's doing a pretty good job Excellent.
1: I yeah. do, I do. What about you, Gordon? Are you much of a beer drinker?
0: I do like beer, but uh, I, I don't uh, uh, drink that kind of a uh, widely But uh, I'm quite, quite like. Um, there's a brewing called the Hay called uh, Compan. They do quite a few. Uh, yeah, these, the uh, Compan guys are great. They, yeah. uh, have you um, been over numbers. to
1: their little uh, brew pub thing? I'm afraid not. No. Yeah, like you that. should go check it out. It's like a very. It's of course in like sea containers and like lots of exposed wood, so it's very
0: hipstery. But Compan yeah.
1: does some. They do some really, really nice, uh, nice beer. Yeah,
0: they, they got one that's uh, sort of like a, a, a stout, but it's laced with port. So yeah. Nine percent strength. And, yeah. Uh, I've got a bottle in my fridge but I haven't dared open it yet <laughs> yeah.
1: so Demola which is this Dutch brewery based in Bodachava, is sort of famous for it's like really high alcohol stouts they do a lot of really good Russian imperial stouts and that kind of stuff so if you live in Delft they have a f- one on top right now at uh, a heck closer because I was I know because I was there last night unsurprisingly but yeah so if you like a really like high alcohol like kind of boozy stout they do a lot of good stuff with like cocoa and, and, and coffee and that sort of thing
0: yeah and IPA seems to be becoming a thing over here as well at the moment which is obviously I know very well from Britain, uh, there's lots, lots of uh, various uh, IPAs. Yeah I was it was, uh, it was funny because
1: when we when we did the article on the site about the CBS report on the Dutch News site I sort of read the comments which is always a mistake and there was just a lot of people in the comments kind of just complaining that all craft beer was was IPAs which to some degree was true so um, part of this is because uh, the rise of the craft beer seed in the world was sort of started in the US and in the US it's, it's much easier to kind of raise these like very pungent hops than it is maybe in other places because of yeah so for climate reasons mm. But also like, you know, Americans kind of started with these really punchy, hoppy, super bitter IPAs and this kind of became the trend for a while. But to be honest, that trend is like you're still available. I mean, it's still really easy to get good IPAs, but when you go to beer festivals, that's not kind of the things that people are touting. You know, there's there's been kind of a lot of sours, which has been a traditional Belgian style that have kind of like that. That's also become really popular. And the last time I was in the US, the thing that all of the craft beers were making was a kolsch, which is like a Czech german style
0: like is that not from cologne yeah exactly
1: um and they use like czech hops in this beer um and it's i I don't like it at all it's like kind of slightly pilsnery but this was like sort of the thing and the thing that was kind of nice about this is is that so every sort of craft beer place we went into we kept trying this kolsch but of course americans have no ties to history or tradition in any sense but particularly (laughs) in the beer sense and so they were kind of just doing their own interpretations of it so people making kolsch with juniper berries and like acorns horns and all this kinds of stuff so there were some i found some quite tasty ones unlike the sort of beer that you find in cologne which i think is crap Please, don't, please <laughs> I, I hope we don't have any listeners from cologne
2: do you like the uh, the monastery beers that we have in the netherlands the, yeah the uh, trappist beers. Yeah, yeah the doubles and the triples yeah
1: so those are um well doubles and triples are kind of a traditional would Belgian you consider style.
2: that a uh, crafts beer
1: I guess, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, they've been around for a really long time and there's a very strict set of regulations about how you can sort of produce and sell these beers. They have to be made by monks. All of the uh, profits from the uh, sale of the beer have to be reinvested into the monastery and that kind of stuff. Worldwide, I think there's 13 or 14 now, but the Netherlands only has two. They have uh, one that I think everybody's probably pretty familiar with, La Trappe. That is a, a Trappist brewery. It's also a quite nice brewery to go and visit. They do a really good, uh, good tour there.
0: The
2: yeah,
1: yeah yeah and then uh zundart which is a, a kind of new that's one. the newest
2: one
0: right yeah exactly
1: and they make a quite a quite a nice uh, very drinkable blonde so if you're into uh these sort of blonde double style beers you can find some nice ones at uh at these trappist places even but- the u.s now has a trappist brewery really yeah yeah, yeah. in massachusetts there's one called spencer do they have monks there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to have, the beer has to be made by monks and like you have to, there's all these like very strict uh, sort of rules and regulations about it, which is why they you don't get a whole lot of variety in terms of style. But yeah, I mean, there's some really nice, I think, Orval, which is also a Trappist is, is easily one of my favorite beers. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of really good quality beer that, that comes from the monks. Well, yeah, so I hope that uh, people go out and have some uh, some nice beers this weekend. There's, like, lots of good beer bars out there, so maybe go down to your, your pub and, and ask for a recommendation from the bartender. And if not, you can always send me a message on Twitter. I'm happy to make beer recommendations even to random strangers on the internet. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email at podcast at dutchnews.nl. My thanks to Gordon Derrick and Paul Pater, I'm Molly Quell, and we'll be back next week.